1: While Las Vegas Entertainment is in limbo, let's remember a time when a certain show not only defined an era here, but put Las Vegas on the map and introduced the synthesis of entertainment and politics. That time was 60 years ago and was the launch of the Rat Pack, a unique publicity concoction that has lived on way beyond its sell-by date. My guest is Richard A. Lertzman. He's author, along with Lon Davis, of Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey, the Mob, and the Summit, published by Prestige cinema books and available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Richard, go to thelifeandtimesofhollywood.com and follow him on Twitter at Rick Lertzman. And Rick, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate your time.
1: Why did you decide to take a new look at the Rat Pack phenomenon and why did you focus on Joey Bishop particularly?
0: About 30 years ago, I got to know Joey Bishop and Joey was kind of wrapping up his career and he spent a lot of time. He had a In his home in Newport Beach, outside of Newport Beach, he had all this memorabilia about the Rat Pack, and he told me stories. And he told me about how he got into show business and and how he fell into the Rat Pack. And it kind of coincided that I had known a lot of people from the Cleveland area who came down to Las Vegas, gentlemen like Moe Dalitz, who helped create the Sands Hotel and Desert Inn and the Dunes and uh, part of the Convention Center and Sunrise Hospital. Guys like Billy Weinberger, who created Caesar's Palace, who helped create Caesar's Palace, Carl Cohn, a lot of names from Cleveland, a lot of consider, them consider considered them mobsters, and they kind of all meshed together. And I, through Joey Bishop, I thought, here's a way to take a look at the rat pack and really, you know, not to print the legend, but tell more about, and then, and less about the myth, more about the true story of how they came about. And, how really they impacted Vegas in 1960.
1: The other interesting part is the book is a mix of the two, meaning the Rat Pack, but you also write a lot about Joey Bishop. What I found interesting was when you first met him, he seemed to be what most people think of him that have dealt with him and a little bit ornery, so to speak. And somehow you were able to win his confidence because you came back many times and had additional conversations with him. How did that first Meeting go and how did you make it to the second meeting?
0: You know, I, I initially I had known a, a gentleman named Sheldon Leonard, who was well known with creating the helping create the Andy Griffith Show and Dick Van Dyke Show, and a lot of the I uh, Dan, he worked in the Danny Thomas Show, and Sheldon Leonard uh, had also created the Joey Bishop Show, which was a sitcom for about four seasons. And uh, I asked Sheldon if I could meet Frank Sinatra, and he said no. Who was a friend. Sheldon had appeared with Frank, and Guy's 1,000 was a personal friend of his. Then I asked him, you know, how about Joey Bishop? And he goes, why would you want to meet, and this is Yiddish, why would you want to meet this Meshigana? <laughs> and <it did> so, <laughs> and Frank, you know, he was a part of, of television, and, and he had given such such service to uh, Frank, to uh, Sheldon Leonard. Sheldon just didn't want anything to do with him. But he, he opened the door and he introduced me to Joey Bishop and I went down and visited Joey who was a bit bitter because at the time I met him, his career had kind of gone downhill. Uh, he was kind of forgotten. But he was he was still, he had that Joey Bishop kind of sardonic sense of humor. He, he knew uh, uh, great stories from show business and I would sit and listen to him in his house. He lived in, in an area called the Lido Isle, which, which was a uh, out in the marina in uh, Newport Beach where he had his boat dock hold. It was called the Son of a Gun. And so I, I sat and listened, and uh, it was, he, he was actually a very fascinating, interesting person to talk to.
1: But how did you manage to convince him to meet with you again and again? Because in the book, you talk about how he wasn't that great of a host initially, But then you continue to go back and, over the years, get additional material.
0: You know, he warms up to me. I listen to his stories. And and when when you try to be a good listener and you you laugh at the right jokes and and you're receptive, you know, Joey became very friendly to me. He would always call me, and and I lived in Cleveland at the time, and he would always call me and joke around and call on the phone and tell me stories. And when I got out to Los Angeles, he always said, come out and visit with them. So which I did, I, I came out to his, I went out to the boat one time, uh, we had, we had lunches out there, uh, I got to know his wife, Sylvia, I got to know his mistress too later on, and uh, he was, he, 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 the more we talked, the more, the closer we got, and, and it was a, quite a few meetings and, and telephone discussions over, uh, uh, about twenty years—the last yeah, that's twenty a, years of his life—that's
1: a long time. When you had those conversations, I don't think you recorded them, but did you take notes afterwards so you wouldn't forget what you discussed?
0: Well, actually, I, I did record them because I always kind of record conversations. So I, you know, I started out in the seventies with a reel-to-reel, and I ended up now digitizing. But I did record a lot of his conversations, so it's it's fascinating to listen to them now and to hear. Uh, Joey's thoughts and perspective.
1: Yeah, and his voice too. Was he aware that you were recording them?
0: Oh, always. Yeah, okay. you always. Have, okay. you, know, you just always be fair. Right. And uh, he had no problem with that. And and he liked being on the record and kind of telling the story and being remembered.
1: It's an interesting mix, as I said in the beginning. It's, it's a look at the rat pack and the phenomenon of the rat pack and why it was concocted. And at the same time, it's also. A not a biography. It's really a, a portrait of one of the participants that you normally don't hear about too often, and I'm, that's why I think the book is interesting. It's, it covers Joey Bishop on a lot of levels, and you don't get sentimental about it. He it seems to rub people the wrong, or did seem to rub people the wrong way.
0: Well, you know, Joey was an interesting person to look at. He wasn't a Jack Benny. He wasn't. He wasn't one of the great comedians. He was. And, and which is not a bad thing, but he was a journeyman comic. He was a guy who had started in the late '30s, had worked his way up, worked a lot of little clubs and mob clubs, and had, had really, you know, taken the, the hard knocks route to uh, to fame. And by the time he really perfected his craft by the early '50s, he uh, he was a fair-haired boy of, of uh, Abe Lassfogle from the William Morris office who put him in touch with Frank Sinatra and Joey became the opening act for Frank Sinatra at clubs like the Copacabana and the Shapery and and the Latin Quarter. So when he, by the time he he got his stripes as a, and and a a, a person like Frank Sinatra never wanted a really high powered comic, a buddy Hackett or someone who would suck the air out of the room. And he, he wanted someone just to warm the audience up and get them ready for Frank. And Joey fit that that role perfectly, and did it for about ten years in the in the uh, the early to late fifties.
1: We're going to touch on the Rat Pack in a little while, but I want to just to talk a little bit more about Joey Bishop. Was Joey Bishop his own worst enemy, based on your research and conversations with him?
0: You know, he really was. Some, you know, you'd expect you'd expect from Joey, after kicking around and, and following this. Tough route to get to where he was; that he would be more appreciative. And by the time he reached his pinnacle, when the Rat Pack had exploded, he he really he know he had he had one time been asked by Ed Sullivan to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show for uh, ten times, and Joey just was, you know, viciously turned down the offer. You don't bite Ed Sullivan, who was a very powerful person on television at the time. So Joey. Kind of got carried away with himself. And, you know, he really thought he was a great actor and a great performer. And he became very hard and he was very hard on writers. Joey had a writer on the sitcom named Milt Josephsburg and Milt had worked for Jack Benny for 20 years, very mild mannered, very laid back, elderly gentleman, very sweet man. And Gary Marshall, Gary uh, Marshall told me the story. He said, Milk, you know, had written one of the scripts, and Joey was playing Joey, and he played his twin cousin. And during the week, Joey's getting angrier and angrier, and no one understands why he's getting so angry. Finally, he grabs this Milk Josephsberg, who's a smaller man, starts shaking, him. he goes... Why did you give all those great lines to my cousin?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Joey was playing both parts. So that's a kind of nonsensical yeah, reaction. Said, well, go,
0: well, Joey, you're playing both parts. You're getting both left. And he he just didn't get he didn't get it. Um, he resented he resented people with an education. Gary Marshall had a, a writing partner. His name was Fred. I his last name. Fred. Fred uh, was, had gone to Columbia as Gary Marshall had gone to, uh, Northwestern. But Gary Marshall had this New York, Brooklyn accent he never got rid of and he sounded like a tough kid. So Joey never worried about Gary because he thought Gary wasn't educated, but his partner, he grabbed him and when he used a word that was too big, he just started, he went off on him. He, he would call him Mr. College. So eventually, you know, his, Gary's writing partner decided to leave, but Gary said, this is such an opportunity to really learn my craft. You know, I here I am at Sheldon Leonard's writing stable and working with Harry Crane and all these great writers. And I didn't want to miss out on being part of that. I wanted to learn my craft. So Gary eventually, besides being a writer, became a producer for the show. And Joey just, went through writer after writer and these are the best of the best these are the people who bill persky and sam denhoff who wrote dick van dyke and the andy griffith show these are these are you know the the, the people who wrote for shelton leonard were considered the best sitcom writers and joey just burned every bridge or where, where, wherever he went one of his writers name was don sherman and don was a, was a journeyman writer he had written for joey for years Don is now very famous because his daughter, Amy Sherman Palladino, has created Mrs. Maisel based on her father's stories. It's amazing how uh, it's
1: all tied in, isn't
0: it? It is. And and you see that reflected in Mrs. Maisel because Mrs. Maisel's a comedian and she's of that era. And I got to meet Don Sherman who told me some incredible stories about Joey and, and not all complimentary. And You know, Joey would appear on the uh, Jack Parr show in the uh, late, which is the Tonight Show in the late 1950s, and he was known for these very quick, witty lines, and everybody thought Joey, here's Joey like, maybe like Fred Allen, a very quick wit, a very erudite person, and it was actually Gary Marshall writing those lines, or Don Sherman writing those lines.
1: And we should Uh, mention that Fred Allen was was a radio, was a radio performer. Fred Fred
0: Allen was such... A talented and witty guy. And he, he appeared on radio with his wife, Portland Hoffa. He's Hoff, uh, kind of a, a, a contemporary of Jack Benny, and they would have a feud going on. And he was big, but because Fred didn't really transfer to television and didn't do a lot of film work, a lot of people don't remember Fred Allen. Uh, at his time, he was a really great performer.
1: Very erudite.
0: Yes, 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 very.
1: And To be fair, to be balanced, Bishop, although he didn't seem to be liked by a lot of his contemporaries, he did have some close, lifelong friends.
0: Well, he did maintain a lot of friends. He had actually great business help. He had Johnny Carson's ex-attorney at Hook Stratton, who helped him in great investments. He had had a, a big group of friends like Jan Murray and Carl Reiner and a lot of contemporaries from that era, and he was part of this click in Los Angeles. of a lot of East Coast comics, a lot of Jewish East Coast comics who had moved to the West Coast. So he was part of this group of comics that we all remember, Jack Carter, and and, uh, maybe we don't all remember, but Shecky Green and a lot of people who were big at that time.
1: You mentioned that you met his wife, Joey's wife, Sylvia. What was your impression of her? And did you get a sense that she understood Joey or she simply loved him, and whatever it was he was, he was. And whatever he did, he did. When I
0: met Sylvia, Sylvia was um, elderly, and she was ill. And as it turned out, she had lung cancer. So Joey watched after her, took after her. He had one son named Larry, who became an actor, who uh, was part of a clique. Larry Bishop was part of a group uh, that went to Beverly Hills High School with Rob Reiner, Richard Dreyfuss, and Albert Brooks. And they were a group of f- close friends. And eventually Larry became a uh, in a comedy team with Rob Reiner until Larry just decided to quit and become an actor. And Sylvie was always concerned about Larry and her grandchildren because she had one son and they had a couple children. But uh, she, she's a very nice lady.
1: But did you get a sense from her that she understood Joy or she tolerated Joy because she loved him? I'd say what she... He tolerated
0: Joey because Joey was kind of kind of an old school husband and she she would she catered to him. She went into the kitchen and would cook for him and take care of him. And it was kind of an old school, you know, like like I was aware of an old school Jewish marriage.
1: Well, let's take a break. My guest Richard A. Lertzman is author along with Lon Davis of Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey the Mob and the Summit published by prestige cinema books and available at Amazon and all the usual places for everything about Richard, go to the life and times of and you can follow him on Twitter at Rick Lertzman. We'll be right back.
0: We'll be back with more talk about Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment.
1: You think, you know, Vegas, but how much do you really know about this neon city? See the dark side of the bright lights at the Mob Museum where you can explore how a tough little town transformed into a gaming metropolis with a little help from organized crime. You won't find these stories of lawbreakers and law enforcement, mob bosses and prosecutors anywhere else. The Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. More information at themobmuseum.org.
0: Now, let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira.
1: Welcome back. I'm talking with Richard A. Lertzman. He's author, along with Lon Davis, of Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey, the Mob, and the Summit, published by Prestige Cinema Books and available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Richard, go to the Life and, times of and you can follow him on Twitter at Rick Lertzman. And, Rick, we were talking in the beginning about Joey Bishop and then him being part of the larger picture, which is the Rat Pack, which is also the main focus of your book. The Rat Pack was fascinating because you go into a lot of detail of how it was constructed and put together as a publicity stunt initially, and yet it has survived all these decades.
0: Oh, you know, the, the creation of it was really, to me, very fascinating because a lot of people I had met and interviewed who were in the underworld my family was in a business, not in the underworld, but connected to it were a lot of people who I had met who came out to Las Vegas to create the, uh, the casinos out here, out in Las Vegas. So I had known Mo Dalitz, and I had interviewed him. I recorded interviews with Mo, uh, a gentleman named Maxie Diamond who helped William Presser and uh, his son Jackie Presser with the Teamsters and the fund out. So they had brought a lot of money out. Carl Cohn, who was a cousin who became the president of the Sands uh, during that whole period. So I, I, as, as they had told me stories, that they decided in the in the late 1950s, the Danny Thomas show had come out to the Sands Hotel to shoot their opening season in 1958. And it was a huge success. And It was a big success for the Sands and for Las Vegas because Danny came out and kind of showed the sights of Las Vegas. So one of, the, one of the really bright PR men at the Sands Hotel who had worked for Frank Sinatra uh, and his group early on in, in his career decided to, uh, to really make more of a tie-in to, to uh, films and television. At that point, Las Vegas was more of a, a destination site from Los, Los Angeles than from everywhere else in the world. So they came up with an idea really to put it on the map to use their star entertainer. And that was Frank Sinatra, who owned 9% of the Sands Hotel. And Frank was receptive to all ideas, and Frank loved the idea. And at the time, Frank was working with Dean Martin in a film called Some Come Running. And uh, he thought he, would, he always wanted to appear with Dean. He had also been really close friends with Sammy Davis Jr., who had done a lot of work with the Will Bastion Trio and, and himself, in Las Vegas. And he thought that would be great. And Frank used to go down to the lounge at the, at the Sahara and other places and saw this great talent named Louis Prima and his wife, Keely Smith. And also a guy named Sam Butera was part of that group. And they were freewheeling and funny. And on stage they would joke around and laugh and have it. It was like a ball. And Frank loved that concept. So he decided, and he told the idea to the PR guy who said, let's put them all together. And so he added that, and then he added Joey Bishop, who was his opening act. And Joey kind of was like the Keeley Smith of this group, where he he was very stone-faced and a straight man. And then Peter Lawford, who was a, a friend at one time of Frank Sinatra's in the early 50s, when they both worked at MGM, They had gotten in a fight about his wife, Ava Garga. But years later, when Peter Lawford married Patricia Kennedy, Frank was fascinated that here was Peter Lawford, who was close to the possible future president of the United States, John Kennedy. So Peter came to him with a script called Ocean's Eleven, which he had been trying to sell. And that script, Frank took to uh, Warner Brothers, and and Jack Warner thought it was a great script and said, let's film it. And Frank said, let's film it on location in Las Vegas, because it was a Vegas heist film. And he told us to the PR director, who said, this is great. So with the backing of Mo Dalitz and with other friends, such as Frank Costello and Meyer Lansky, they decided to really put the money into that and put the money into bringing in, adding in Dean Martin, And Sammy Davis, and then Peter Lawford was given a part of it, uh, and then Joey Bishop was added. And so they decided to call it the Summit. And for 28 days in February of 1960, they did two shows a night at the Sands, and the Sands, I think in those days, had like 300 rooms, and before during the pre-publicity, they had something like 30,000 reservations, and they spread it all over Las Vegas. And and so for for twenty eight days, they did these two shows. Tickets were only seven dollars, but you couldn't get a ticket. Of everybody course. wanted to go, Yeah,
1: including celebrities.
0: Every celebrity from Los Angeles, Cary Grant and Marilyn Monroe, and everybody wanted to go to this event. This was the event. So they didn't go one time. People people came for show after show, and you couldn't get a ticket anywhere. And the press. Converged on Las Vegas. So people in New York saw this and Miami and all over the world saw this great event with Frank and Dean and Sammy. And they saw clips of how funny they were and loose they were on stage. And Joey would break, Joey Bishop would roll out a bar. And you know, the truth is these were five middle aged guys. All, you know, all were uh, businessmen. You can't go on stage and and be drinking and partying all day and night. So Dina Martin told me, you know, Dean had apple juice in his glass. Dean came with his wife, Jeannie. Mae Britt was with Sammy Davis Jr. She eventually married Sammy Davis. Joey Bishop had Sylvia with him. Peter Lawford had Patricia Kennedy with him. So, I mean, they, they, you know, it was hard. They did two shows every night. They filmed during the day for Lewis Milestone and warner brothers during the day to las vegas these weren't the freewheeling swingers that we all love to think you know it's sort of like liberty Valance. you know it's print the legend and the legend's (laughs) been printed but the fact that the truth is that you know they were very disciplined performers and this was their peak of their career and they were ready to cash in and cash in they did i mean it for owned nine percent of the sands. It was uh, 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 a huge windfall for him. Uh, Peter Lawford got a piece of Ocean's Eleven. Uh, Dean and Sammy got, and Joey got big paydays, and it made their careers. It made you know Dean was already famous with Jerry, but he was really on a second career now, and Dean became this great icon with Frank. Frank and the talent of Frank. And Dean and Sammy. It was so magnetic. It was, it was so uh, exciting to see them on stage. And everybody thought this is a very loose show. And it was in some ways, but in a lot of ways, it was a very scripted and tight show. And they knew exactly where they were going to go.
1: And the connection, and, too, with politics, as I alluded to in the beginning, because of that connection with Senator Kennedy, who was running for president through connection with Peter Lawford, That then became a connection for Frank Sinatra to raise money and perform for Kennedy.
0: Yeah, you know, Joe Kennedy was probably one of the best PR, brilliant observer of pop culture. He had done it earlier with FBO Studios, which became RKO Studios in Hollywood. He knew the business, and he didn't want his son to appear like Richard Nixon. He didn't want him to appear stodgy and very laid back and... Even though they were, they were close to the same age, he wanted his son to appear young and hip. And he thought the greatest way would, to be go through his son-in-law, who's Peter Lawford and get John to come to Las Vegas just as he's beginning his campaign for president and to appear there for three days. And so for three days, here's John Kennedy in the audience and Frank introduces him from the stage and all of them introduced as the next president. And he gets all this newsreel footage and news footage, and it's broadcast all over. Meanwhile, Joe Kennedy had worked with the mob in the 1930s in in illegal distribution of alcohol from Canada. And so he had known all these mob types, you know, Sam Giancana and Meyer Lansky, and he came to them, and they were really worried that Las Vegas could be extinguished by the uh, federal government, and he, he he said, if my son's elected, you'll have a friend in the White House. So Joe Kennedy said, okay, give us some campaign donations, and we'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll consider you a friend. And so uh, this is according to Sammy Davis. Peter Lawford took him back to uh, see this satchel, and in the satchel was a million dollars. That John Kennedy carried back to his father as a campaign donation from a lot of the uh, mob leaders in Las Vegas who owned the hotels and, and casinos. and it was a, you know, later it was to be to make them a friend of John Kennedy. And of course, they didn't uh, unfortunately, quite.: Yeah, Bob, that, didn't,
1: that didn't work out. Before I let you go, because we're almost out of time, why is it that the, the myth or at least the glamour of the rat Pack has endured over the decades?
0: You know, it still resonates to this day. I mean, there's still rat pack shows. I know there's one, there was one at Mandalay Bay that was doing very well. All over the country, Dina Martin's appearing and does a kind of rat pack show. It's, it's, it's kind of a a throwback to another era. And it really never went away. And although it really only lasted through 1960 and it completely ended in 1963 with the assassination of John Kennedy. It was a very short-lived era, but people still remember it. People still fondly remember it. You know, there's there's a lot of negatives. It was a very misogynistic act. But it still today resonates because probably of the music and of Frank Sinatra, and Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. And you had to see it on stage to see that, that kind of power they had on stage.
1: There's so much more in your book. My guest, thank you for being on. My guest has been Richard A. Lertzman. He's author, along with Lon Davis, of Deconstructing the Rat Pack, Joey, the Mob, and the Summit, published by Prestige Cinema Books and available at Amazon and all the usual places. For everything about Richard, go to the thelifeandtimesofhollywood.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Rick Lertzman. Rick, thanks for being on the show.
0: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it,
1: Isla. See you next time.
0: You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. I'll be I'll be in in you want to be Break. your, Break. your